0: The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Stephen Baugh. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Our Father in heaven, you have gathered us from all the nations of the world to this place to meditate upon your word, and so we approach with joy. We come into your presence with gladness and with praise upon our lips because in Christ Jesus we now have been set free to uh, be constrained in our worship of you, a holy slavery, O Lord, because you have actually set us free, that we become children of God free in your presence to enjoy you forever. Help us to uh, honor you with our meditation today upon your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in our faculty series, we are now in Isaiah 45. So this is where uh, my assignment is, Isaiah 45. If you'll turn there, I will be skimming through much of this chapter and then focusing on a couple of verses toward the end. This is a rather long chapter, 25 verses. They're not all exactly uh, proportionate, but it's it's a rather longish section to do in a brief chapel. Nevertheless, I thought it was important to give you a survey of most of the contents here. If you want to get a handle on the contents of this chapter, I think you can divide it into verses 1 through 13 as primarily focusing on Cyrus. And then verse 14 is a transitional verse. I think it transitions out of Cyrus into Israel, uh, and particularly a universal confession of God as a true God and only God. And then in verses uh, 15 and following to the end of the chapter, you have a focus more on Israel And the nations. So we'll be uh, beginning at the beginning and just looking at the survey with Cyrus. So you'll see in verse 1 Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, etc. This is really quite a striking uh, reference. Cyrus hasn't been born yet. Isaiah lives in the 8th century BC, so roughly 740 to 700. Cyrus doesn't arise until the middle, earlier part of the 500s, uh, so around 559 to 530 is when he ruled. So you have, you have a guy living 200 years later primarily. This Cyrus is Cyrus the Great, Cyrus II. He was the ruler of Persia who did uh, take over in the, in the ancient Near East at that time. And it was under Cyrus that you did have, as the Lord promised, Uh, The the uh, Israelites were uh, allowed to return to their land. So you have a prophecy to that effect in uh, in Isaiah, and it it should you know as an Israelite you should not be particularly happy about this. So notice it's not a Davidic king who leads the people back out of exile; it's a uh, Persian king whom the Lord uh, uses. Interestingly, he calls him my anointed in verse 1. And then you can see in all of this how the Lord is directing him. And everything comes from the Lord. You have this statement in verses 1 through 3, whose right hand I have grasped, I will go before you, I will break in pieces, I will give you the treasures in dark places, etc., and then you find out who it is who's doing this. Verse 12 and 13. I made the earth and created man on it, and it was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all of his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So here is the Lord leading this, his anointed Cyrus. Uh, and he's the creator of heaven and earth, and he is providentially leading this uh, pagan king for his own purposes, uh, and making his ways level for the sake of his people. And his people probably shouldn't be real happy about this, as I said, because it's not it doesn't originate from within the covenant community. It's this foreigner whom God is using for his good ends. And you know, it could be that the foreigner himself could complain that he's being used by this, what to him is a foreign god, the Lord, although the Lord has made clear that he's the creator, even of Cyrus, and has a claim on him. And then, then you get verse 9 in light of this. So in light of a potential complaint by Cyrus that he's being used uh, improperly, here's what the Lord says in verse 9. Woe to him who strives in him who formed him a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making or your work has no handles? So this is God's answer to Cyrus. Oh, you're going to complain? Well, you're you're the pot, you know, and I'm I'm the potter. I'm making out of the clay what I desire. You really have no basis for complaint here which is quite interesting because Paul picks up this same imagery of the pot, as you know. I mean, this is quite an echo uh, found in Romans 9. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? It's an echo of that same principle that God is the potter and he can do what he wishes with the pot. He's not using Cyrus against his will, but he's definitely using him for his own purposes. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So Cyrus' steps are going to be directed for God's purpose, is what we're told. And the reason why is, yes, yeah, Cyrus is going to be magnified. Out In the end of this, he'll, be, he'll find treasures and he'll... He'll be exalted over various nations. But in in the end of the day, in verse 4, notice what he says in verse 4. I will give you the treasures of darkness, verse 3, and hordes and secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. So God is still identifying himself not as the God of Cyrus and the God of Persia, but he's the God of Israel, verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob... And Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So Cyrus hasn't suddenly adopted the Lord of Israel as his God. He never did. But he's being used by the Lord and the God of Israel so that Israel may prosper and benefit from the Lord's use of this pagan king. So Israel can complain that a Davidic king doesn't bring them return from exile, but at the same time, they can't complain because the God of Israel is still acting on their behalf, arranging everything all around them for their good. And that's uh, pretty clear from what this is said. But in the end of the day, in the end of the day, Israel should be humbled by this because in the end of the day, What really is paramount in this is that the Lord's own name will be exalted in his grace and kindness toward Israel using whatever means he desires to prosper Israel. He is the Creator, verses 7 and 8. He's the one who created heavens and the earth. He has the right to this and he deserves praise as our Creator. But he is the only God. This is something that God is adamant about. It's stated five times in our passage that he is the only God. Last week, Professor Horton mentioned this in his chapter, the one previous to this, that you really have monotheism being brought up very prominently here. Well, it's picked up in this chapter as well. It's very prominent, very striking. Verse 5, I am the Lord. There is no other beside me. There is no God. Verse 6. I am the Lord. There is no other. Verse 18. I am the Lord and there is no other. Same words repeated. Verse 21. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Verse 22, I am God and there is no other. (laughs) Okay. So you get that, right? (laughs) You see, he just repeats himself. There is no other God, by the way. (laughs) There is, I am God. There is no other. Um, and so the Lord is, is underlying the fact that he is the God of Israel and he's the only God. Cyrus may have a whole host of other gods, but they are not God. He is the one God who acts as he wishes. And he wishes to benefit his people. And yet, surprisingly, in this passage, a thread comes in that we, who are not Israelites, should be very attentive to. Um, The Lord uses this Cyrus king, this Persian king, for the sake of Israel. But in the end of the day, the Lord is the only God of the whole earth. Verses 5 and 6, a lot of this is repetition, but there's something in here of, of interest to us. The universal knowledge of God. Verse 5 and 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So from the east to the west, people may know that I am the only God. So the use of Cyrus is for God's glory from east to west, universal glory over the whole earth, so that people from all the tribes and nations and language groups of the whole world would know the one true God. This is where Isaiah is transitioning us to. And I think that's that transition verse 14. So 1 through 13 is Cyrus and the Lord's use of him. A couple of hints already to a universal knowledge. And now verse 14, which transitions further to Israel and the universal salvation of God. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, And the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside him. This is an ambiguous verse. I call it transitional because at first you're thinking, This is Cyrus. And now you're thinking, No, this isn't Cyrus. Because Cyrus has never confessed the true God of Israel. This has got to be Israel. Surely God is in your midst. See, God is in the midst of his people Israel, and there's no other God. He's the God of Israel. And so these people from foreign lands are coming to Israel because the Lord is there in their midst. So you really get a transition here into Israel away from Cyrus. So the the effect of Cyrus returning the people to their land is so they can have a land where the Lord will dwell in their midst, and the peoples roundabout can come in and confess the one true God, because there is no other. Well, this is this is made plain when the when the Lord uh, shows that His interest is in delivering His people. Verse seventeen, for example. So we're now we're in the second part of this. Uh, chapter, chapter, verses uh, 15 to the end. Verse 17, But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. So the Lord is affirming to Israel, Look, I'm, I've got a plan for you. You may be in exile, uh, which of course is anticipated by Isaiah, uh, but I will bring you back, and I will bring you an everlasting deliverance. And now you have a verse that I'd like to spend time on, and that's this verse 23. Um, verse 23 is uh, an oath. It is a, uh, the Lord swearing an oath. And you should always be attentive to these. When the Lord swears, it is always an important uh, statement of the Lord, of his unswerving counsel. The oath is taken perhaps here. It's not really clear. In verse 23, the oath could already have been sworn. In our English and in Hebrew, it does have this potential as being passed. So let me read the first part of verse 23. By myself, I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. So when he says, by myself, I have sworn, the Lord could be announcing that he has taken an oath already. And he's simply reminding the the people of an oath or revealing an oath that he has already taken. This is what we find in other places in scripture, like Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are priests priest forever. This is a disclosure from God of his secret counsel. His secret counsel is an oath-bound-like thing. It is the counsel of the Lord of what he will most surely do. The reason I I point this out is sometimes the Lord announces something that he will do as a test for his audience. This is particularly with judgment. You think of Nineveh. The the Lord didn't swear that he was going to destroy Nineveh. He simply sent a prophet to Nineveh with an announcement of judgment But he hadn't sworn and fixed in his decree what he would do to Nineveh. Instead, he gave an announcement of judgment to them so that they would repent, and then they did. And when they repented, he relented on his judgment. He knew that. His counsel was that they would repent. But you see, he didn't say to the Ninevites, as I have sworn, you will surely die. If he'd done that, there would be no repentance he he wouldn't have he wouldn't have taken it back because it's not his fixed counsel here is his fixed counsel he is revealing to you and me here he has a fixed determination that he will not change it's not like Nineveh anymore it's not something he's he's proposing that you should respond to your response should be the lord is going to do this and believe it and follow his directives as a result. So you read the rest of verse 29. The Lord has sworn to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The Lord has sworn this will take place. Notice how this flows right out of what he emphasized five times. I'm the Lord. There is no other God beside me. And there will be a day when that is acknowledged on the earth by the whole human race, every knee will bow to me. Every heart, every tongue will swear allegiance to me. There will be that day. Paul picks this up, quite interestingly. Paul picks this up as final judgment. Romans 14. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. See, there's a coming judgment. There's a day ahead that the Lord has sworn will take place. The Lord is not going to relent on that coming judgment. He relented to Nineveh because it was a test for them and he granted them repentance. And they could repent. But he didn't swear to him like this. When he swears this oath in Isaiah, he's he's disclosing his fixed counsel. This will happen. It's interesting the Septuagint renders this not as a past tense, but as a present tense happening right here. So here's how and, and by the way, this is possible with Hebrew. So read again Isaiah 23 if this interpretation is correct here is the oath I myself hereby swear that's how that that's the effect of that I myself hereby swear to me every knee we the lord is making a public declaration on oath of what will happen in the future and so when we read this we see this as a, t- a, a, a very fearsome oath, one that should bring us uh, back to our ultimate allegiance. Will you swear allegiance to God on that last day? Or will you do it now and be saved? So that that's a happy day, a day of joy, a day when you bow the knee gladly because you've already bowed the knee to the Lord in deliverance that he provides. Now here, Paul shows another place where he picks up this language that makes us the happiest possible message in Colossians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing like taking the form of a servant, being fulfilled before the day of judgment in that you can bow the knee to Jesus now and you can now confess him as your Lord so that on that last day you're not confessing in fear but in joy what you confess now because he suffered death on the cross in place of your death on that last day of judgment. There is no more death for you and no more condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. That oath was fulfilled on the cross and will be fulfilled when everyone bows the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. To the glory of God the Father, Father, Son, and Spirit will be glorified. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not absent from our passage in Isaiah. Verse 22 and 25. Turn to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there's no other in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall be glory. All the offspring, those from far and near, turn to me, those of you who are far off, and those of you who are near, and bow the knee to me now, and be saved. This is our word for the today. Go in peace.: Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.